This podcast contains discussion of suicide and suicidal thoughts. We joked that we were hospital property because that's what's printed on the outside of your paper bags when they take your stuff away and lock it away until you let out. One of the members of our group, she experienced delusions, but she wasn't depressed and she wasn't suicidal. She just saw things that other people didn't and heard voices. We got to know her and really liked her, myself and this other woman. And there was a real kerfuffle one night just after dinner and everyone ran outside to the courtyard area. I don't know even how she got herself onto the roof. And she was standing up there in her nightgown and talking to herself and the staff were running around going, someone's got to get on the roof, she's going to jump. Out of My Mind is a podcast about mental health produced for staff by me, Adam Dudding. In each episode, one person talks about their life and about the view from inside their head. Today, Barbed Wire with Tammy Allen of Auckland. And they were obviously thinking that she was suicidal and that she was going to hurt herself. But my friend and I were like, she's never been suicidal, that's really odd. But I wonder what she's saying, no one's listening to what she's saying. So we, we kept our ears out and we heard her talk about flying and it became really clear to us that she thought she had wings and that when she jumped she was going to fly. She wasn't going to die or hurt herself. She actually thought she was going to fly out of here, she was going to fly over the fence. I yelled out to her, I said, wait, stop, there's a hole in one of your wings, I can see it, it's just underneath your left elbow. And she looked to where I was pointing and she suddenly got frightened that, gosh, if she jumped now with a hole in her wing, that wouldn't go down well. So she very gingerly climbed down off the roof and a whole lot of people swamped her. But in that moment, I kind of realised that we really need to listen to people more and not assume what people are seeing or feeling in any given moment. Mental illness, mental distress, it's a manifestation of the way you think, the way you behave, the way you see life, and the flip side of your strengths. For example, I've always been an incredibly visual person. I've always been able to see the paint on the walls before I decide what colour I'm going to use, work out interior decoration and see it in photographic detail before I go out and purchase those things. I've been able to visualise my artwork before I start with the piece of clay. That's generally in my life been a real strength, but when things are incredibly stressful and my brain doesn't know how to cope, that's the same tools available to me are visual and those can be flipped and become nightmarish. So in moments of distress and psychosis, when those visual images come away from inside my brain and are standing right in front of me, I see things that could be in nightmares. So in a moment of extreme distress, I saw my pet rabbit sitting in the oven. And I couldn't just dismiss it because I could see him in there and I could see him panicking and in danger. So I had to open the oven and pass my hand through this image of the rabbit so that I could distinguish between it being there and not being there. So I knew it didn't exist even though I was seeing it. And then I had to literally sit in front of the oven, staring into it, staring at the knobs to know that the oven was off. And then my husband had to come and sit down next to me and 
describe what he was seeing and that was kind of a way of getting through that moment. I can't even remember the situation leading up to it, but it would have, as is my pattern, been a moment of extreme emotional distress probably brought on by a significant argument. I was born in Australia and moved to New Zealand with my Kiwi husband when our son was about three. We've since had a daughter. I'm the CEO of a mental health charity called Changing Minds. I guess our main purpose is to collect and understand the real lived experience of people out there in the community of mental distress and then use that to make services better. So part of that's policy, part of that's talking to the media and changing some attitudes. I'm not a psychiatrist or psychologist or a psych nurse, but the reason I'm in the position to be able to talk about these things with some authority is that I've personally seen the mental health system from the inside, both in Australia and in New Zealand. My first being off the railsness was definitely puberty hitting and definitely hormonal. And I don't think even now we've ever got that right because there are times in the month where I have no control over my emotions and I often feel angry or grumpy or pissed off or sad and I don't think I've ever been able to really properly manage that hormonal flux and shift. Fourteen, I was horrible. I think I was a real bitch to my mum in particular. And at 14, I lashed out at her and really hurt her. And my dad had to deal with it. And he slapped me and I ran away. And, you know, it all kind of escalated in a way that some families do. But for me, that was the first time I kind of went, God, I can't even control these emotions when I really want to. And I was really stubborn, so I refused to apologise. And then you feel guilty about that and then that starts that kind of vicious cycle where you're not good enough to even be on this earth and you're a burden to society, blah, 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 etc, etc. The rubbish that your, your head tells you. So I was institutionalised about five or six times between the ages of 15 and 30. And whilst we could go into the intricacies of every one, they all had the same trajectory. I was overwhelmed. I took on too much. I had a fight with my then partner or a close relationship of sorts that ended up with me feeling like I didn't deserve to be here. Then I'd have a suicide attempt or a serious attempt at self-harm and I'd end up being in crisis and either self-admitting or a close friend or family member admitting me into hospital. They all took the same path and me winding up there, but each of those experiences were significantly different because I was never in the same institution twice. So there was an institution that was kind of like, you'd imagine the best Betty Ford clinic that had tempura fish and espresso coffee and the person on the pottery wheel and people walking around with floaty scarves and that was all very nice. And and then there was the extreme to that, which was the padded walls and the barbed wire fences. Time kind of blends into one when you're in places like that. The routine is the same, the days roll on, you have no idea how long you're there. And when I did get out of one of these, I remember 
not knowing how to cross the road, not knowing the timing of crossing between cars or whether that was safe. When the phone rang, I didn't want to answer it. I stood frozen staring at the phone. So institutionalisation is real, you know, because it becomes comfortable, it becomes your way of life. You're woken up at a certain time, you're given your meds at a certain time, you have meals at a certain time, you go to bed and life is contained for you and it, whilst it's not pleasant, it's easy. And going back out into the real world after that is really terrifying. I worry when I hear court reports where people are talking about serious abuse that they've experienced and then the other end of the court will say, well, this witness is unreliable because they've had mental distress or they have mental illness or they've experienced psychosis. But just because sometimes their reality doesn't match those of the people around them does not mean that they are an unreliable witness because reality comes in layers. So if you go back to my story about the rabbit, the oven was there, the floor was there, the warmth from the oven that was open, you could have sat next to me and seen all those things. The only thing that you couldn't see was the layer on top of that, which was the rabbit in the oven. Even if people have experienced alternate realities, they are still reliable witnesses to their own lives and we should be believing them. Psychosis is just seeing, hearing or feeling things that the other people around you can't. And that is much less weird than you think. If you consider, when I say the word nits, just sit with that for a moment. Can you feel your skin crawling and do you want to scratch your head? Now, that is a real feeling that you're going through right now and yet I can't see nits on your head and you know that those nits aren't in your hair that doesn't stop your scalp from scratching you know that is your reality if you hear your name being called and the person walking next to you doesn't hear your name that doesn't mean you didn't hear it it just means that you're experiencing different reality that's the same as psychosis it's just turned up to you know 12 or 13 on a volume dial of 10 When I was 23, after making another suicide attempt, I was offered electroconvulsive therapy, ECT. It was meant to reduce my distress, but all it did was wipe a whole lot of my memory. I lost my childhood. I lost all the memories that don't come in a photograph album or people telling me anecdotes. The second to last time I was an inpatient was in 2002 in Australia. That was shortly after the birth of our first child. So my son was born really prematurely, which put heaps of stress on myself and my husband and sent me into that horrible dark space of depression. And because life was so hard, I also wasn't sleeping and, you know, things got worse. There was the experience of seeing things that didn't exist to anyone else. It was incredibly scary. It was like having a nightmare, but knowing that you were awake and not being able to do anything about it. Being trapped in a Stephen King novel in my waking hours. I was admitted to hospital and unfortunately I wasn't allowed to take my baby. So I spent a couple of months in an institution which was not unlike the institutions we see in things like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. There were tiles on the floor and the, the walls were a soft pastel green and your bedroom was a mattress on the floor and a shelf with you know no way of hurting yourself on that shelf. 
I waited for two months before they could get me into a unit at the famous Glenside Hospital in Adelaide that allows you to take mothers and babies together. I think I was there for two or three months. Basically, they were going to try and reduce the symptoms of extreme depression and psychosis. So mostly that was about finding the cocktail of medication that was going to work. And that takes some trial and error. Some of the medications didn't work at all with me or increase my suicidality. So there was quite a lot of juggling. And at the same time, because it was a maternal mental health unit, there was a lot of group work, a lot of talking therapies with other mums, skills building in terms of parenting and bonding and socialisation and that sort of stuff. The nurses would try as much as possible for you to have your baby overnight, but if they felt that you actually needed sleep more than you needed to parent, then they would take the baby and look after them overnight. He was about six months old when I finally looked in his eyes and went, this is what I was supposed to feel, this sense of bonding that I hadn't had until that moment. And that's kind of when my recovery from that particular experience began. That and that the doctors had finally discovered that actually my thyroid had stopped working years ago and that might have been why I was feeling so bad. The final time I was institutionalised was 15 years ago not long after we'd moved from Adelaide to Auckland. It started in the usual kind of way. I was at a party. It was a really lovely, happy occasion. No one had drunk too much. I certainly wasn't drunk. For some reason, I had an argument with my husband and I ran off into the night and found myself in a phone booth ringing him and saying, I'm feeling really suicidal, I don't think I'm very safe. And then he calling crisis team and I don't remember how I got there but I ended up in hospital. I sat in a small locked very white very bright room in the middle of the night for six hours with not a single person checking on me and they obviously knew I was safe because there was no way of harming myself but in that moment I regretted calling crisis in that moment I thought I should have pulled my shit together and just got over the argument and gone back to the party but it was kind of too late And I was not very good at backpedalling from those moments of crisis back then, and I'm a little bit better at it now. I reckon I was there for two or three months. It was another long stay. I seem to be really good at those. In Australia, we don't have Guy Fawkes Day because it's around bushfire season. And this was going to be my first Guy Fawkes night. And I knew that my friends always hold this great Guy Fawkes party and I really wanted to go that they wouldn't let me out. So I sat on the inside of the vents watching Guy Fawkes through the barbed wire. But in that moment, I so wanted to be part of Guy Fawkes and I had been in there long enough for the staff to kind of trust that I wasn't really of any danger to myself or others, that with my very strong fingernails, I unpicked the fence... (laughs) And I opened it wide enough to escape for a couple of hours and sit on the hill watching the fireworks and then escaped back. But of course I couldn't really fix the fence. (laughs) And other patients found the hole in the fence and escaped and they weren't quite as safe, I think. One particular guy that went AWOL, they luckily found him, but in the meantime he'd gone on a bit of a bender. 
And I kind of felt a bit bad about that, but I certainly wasn't going to put my hand up. So I sat there watching him being told off by staff and feeling like I was in a school boarding house, knowing I'd caused it but wasn't going to be the one punished. He ended up in solitary confinement over it. I was 31, 32 at the time, around about that age. So I was definitely adult. I'd had a whole life and career and family behind me. But being treated like a child, like I had no autonomy, I couldn't make any decisions for myself. You know, people will bring in art materials and they'll take a paintbrush away from you because, I don't know, you might stab yourself with it or something. It's just, it got ridiculous. So there was a moment where I thought, well, you're not listening, you're treating us like kids. I'm supposed to be on suicide watch and you don't even come and check on me. And they probably were, but that was my perception. But there was a good six or seven hours in the middle of the night where they considered me sufficiently safe to let me sleep. But of course I wasn't sleeping. And I'd had a really bad day with a particular staff member who was very patronising. And I had some vivids from my art materials. And I put a chair on top of a table in the dining room and I wrote on the ceiling of the dining room treat us like children and we'll act like children and I kept writing it and moving the chair and the table across the dining room until there was a good few hundred if not thousand lines written on the ceiling of the dining room treat us like children and we'll act like children And I went back to bed and we woke up for breakfast the next morning and everyone discovered this stuff on the ceiling. And of course, for the patients, it was hilarious. They thought it was the best joke ever. And the staff were like, how did anyone get away with this? Didn't anyone know who was in here at night? And that same poor guy got blamed, you know, because it's always the ones who are actively acting out that get blamed for that stuff. So once again, I felt guilty, but also kind of a little bit of pride at being so sneaky and not being found out. But it often makes me wonder when people do act out in a hospital scenario, just what led up to them acting out and if they're being patronised and if they're being coerced to do stuff they don't want to do and if they are being treated like children, then you fall into that role of going, well, if you're going to treat me like that, I'll act like that. Treat me like I'm three years old, then I'll act like I'm three years old. You tell me I'm violent, I'll be violent, you know, because what's the difference? I'm going to get punished for it anyway. When I got out of the psych unit, I realised that this was never going to be something that fixed me. That was the the biggest epiphany, that I didn't want to be in one of those places ever again and I had to find another way through my distress. Every time I came out of one of those institutions, I'd end up drugged up to my eyeballs and my husband saying I'm living with a zombie. I found it really hard to function in the workplace when I was so heavily medicated and I've had more than enough drugs over the years. When I was 15, I was put on a really old-fashioned antidepressant, which basically just made me really sleepy. And then I went through, you know, things like lithium and epilim and mood-stabilising things and fluoxetine. There's lots of different types. There's tricyclic antidepressants and there's SSRIs and there's ones that are just meant to slow you down and chill you out. Then there's the ones that are supposed to take the edges off stuff. And that's kind of great for the crisis moment, but then means that you don't get to feel stuff. You don't get to feel the good stuff as well as the bad stuff. You can't taste and you can't see colour and all those things that you don't want to delete. So I don't remember the names, but... I remember the experiences of being on them and coming off them. 
Currently, I don't take any drugs at all except for maybe some painkillers every now and then for a headache or one or two that I have to take for my physical health, like thyroid medication. Instead, I'm really thoughtful about my diet in particular. I make sure I do some exercise and meditation or mindfulness, and I keep a pretty close eye on my workload and stress levels. If I've had a huge week at work, I'll go, okay, for the next couple of weeks, I'm going to leave work early, or I'm going to really try and sleep well, and sometimes that means I have to take a few herbal supplements to help me sleep. And I choose not to drink. So there's a whole lot of self-care that goes into keeping myself balanced in those moments where I feel I need it. And I'm really lucky that I've got an incredibly supportive partner. I'm also really interested in the research that suggests there's a strong connection between mental distress and physical inflammation of the body and the brain. So I take a range of supplements that I think have really helped me in those areas. I know that some of my breakdowns have come at times of big hormonal shifts like puberty and after the birth of my son. I've been pretty great for about 15 years mostly, but I'm now in the pre-menopausal stage and I think menopause might bring its own challenges. Just recently I've had some quite bad days and maybe hormonal changes might be a part of what's going on. I got into an argument with my teenage son about him not helping me with household chores normal teenage stuff. We both got really angry and confrontational and it ended up with me whacking him with a soup ladle, which I completely and severely regret. But we ended up not talking for a while and that, you know, I went into a bit of a downward spiral. It was a really tough few weeks, actually. And I was having big panic attacks, thinking I was a really terrible parent and As normally happens when there's a relationship problem that goes on, I was also experiencing some really strong suicidal urges. There's a whole lot of guilt that comes around that, particularly in doing the job that I do, that I have this overinflated sense that I need to be the poster girl for mental health, which means that I can't have a bad day. And I don't often have very many bad days in the last 15 years, but... When I do have those bad days, they're just as bad as they've ever been. Even during those years where I would disappear off to a psychiatric ward for months at a time, I always held down a job. I've been in retail, I've been in hospitality management, I was even a butler once, I've been a business owner, I'm an actor, a producer and a director, I've been a caterer, a flight attendant, I've managed some boutique hotels and great restaurants. I was a sommelier and now there's this fantastic Changing Minds job and I'm a full-time mental health advocate. Because of this role, I'm now way more open about my experiences of mental distress than I ever was before. I have to be. And one thing that you notice when you start talking about mental health is that people get quite nervous about which words to use. We hear crazy, nuts, psycho, schizo, insane, violent, all of that sort of stuff, and they have connotations. But those words to me aren't the dangerous words. The dangerous words are the ones connected with the illness model, the ones that make people other because they're sick and they can't fix themselves. And they're the diagnostic words. This is why I don't like schizophrenia, why I don't like bipolar disorder, why I don't like depression and anxiety, because to me these are all really natural human ways of coping with distress and they shouldn't be labelled. So I love being called mad. I love being called crazy and nuts because that means that you don't know what brand of nuts I am. You just know that I've experienced something that maybe you haven't. 
So the diagnoses that are on my file are depression, anxiety, major depression, postnatal depression, postnatal psychosis, bipolar disorder, rapidly cycling bipolar disorder, and then there's a few not on my file because I was too embarrassed to tell people some of the symptoms I was going under, but probably if I self-diagnosed, I definitely had symptoms of borderline personality disorder, dermatillomania or body-focused repetitive behaviours, which is on the OCD end, and definitely bulimia. I am angry about one person that was supposedly there to treat and care for me in a professional sense. He was my psychiatrist at the time who told me that this was the way I was going to be for the rest of my life. This was when I was in a psych ward, a private one, in Adelaide, and I was only 23. He said to me, you will always have to be on medication for the rest of your life. You will be lucky to have a relationship. You will be lucky to have family. You will be lucky to hold down a job. I am angry that he said them because it took me a long time to realise that they weren't true. And I understand that if you're seeing someone who's really acutely unwell and you see them for a long period of time, that it's really hard to hold out hope. But even a cancer patient, people say, when you're in recovery or when this stage is over. And yet, for some reason, we have this barrier to telling people who are in extreme distress that actually this is not the way the rest of your life has to look. The medication might be really helpful for now, but you don't have to be on it for the rest of your life. You know, you, you might not be in and out of services. We just haven't together found that right jigsaw puzzle of stuff that's going to make your reality bearable. You know, for those who feel hopeless, our job is to hold that hope for them. No matter how many times they hear, oh God, this is the way I'm going to be, we have to go, well, maybe that's not true. Maybe it doesn't have to look like this in a year's time or five years' time. My dad said to me the other day when we were talking about how I've navigated this space between being well and unwell and their support, and he talked about how proud they were of the journey that I've gone on and I guess where I've ended up now. But he did say there was a moment in time, and it was hard for him to say, but he and mum were so completely exhausted and at a loss to know how they could possibly help me anymore. They were in total agony about watching their daughter's unresolvable pain and thinking that maybe just maybe it would be okay if I died. That in the sense that it might have been a better place for me, finally free of all the pain and suffering. And he said that, well, that might have provided them with some brief respite or, or at least a acceptance of what might happen, they also knew that they would experience such intense agony of failure as parents if that happened that would forever haunt them and they would always grieve. So the toll on them and the burden of failing to find solutions for what they saw was a very sick child was huge. They also knew that if I did die, the burden would have been horrendous so they refused to give up on me, and I'm really thankful for that. It probably took a lot for him to say that to me, but I totally get it. Because the burden that I feel I am in those moments, I am. I am a burden in those moments. They're really hard to be around, and I, 
I apologise for that and I wish that I wasn't like that and I wish I could control those moments but I also have to forgive myself that I can't and maybe the blessing is that I'm now better at pulling myself out of them more quickly not that I don't have them but now those moments last four minutes or hours as opposed to days weeks months years I think the media so that includes film and theatre and stuff is very good at telling horrific stories what we're not particularly good at is showing someone who has survived that horror and actually thrived because of it they've built resilience around it. Those are the stories that I'm interested in because those are where solutions lie for people who have not yet discovered what their recovery means. I walked into a room that happened to have two psychiatrists in it that are both really great forward-thinking psychiatrists and they didn't know what I did for a living and for some reason they assumed that I was a psychologist and I went on I'm not clinically trained at all I'm here from a perspective of lived experience and one of them said to me what are your diagnoses and so I rattled off the you know the eight or so diagnoses that I've had and they said oh no you must have been misdiagnosed that can't possibly have been your experiences And I felt sad because I'm not the exception to the rule. I'm actually the norm. Most people do recover from really acute experiences. I set a challenge for them to go out and find someone who had left their service 10 years ago that hadn't come back and find out where they are now. Because I suggest that they're probably living really great, flourishing lives, have a job, have a family. But as long as we don't find out what happens to these people later, we're going to be stuck in that acute way of thinking that people don't recover. Most of the recovery happens outside mental health services. Most of it is the other stuff people put in their lives. Not the drugs we give them, not the therapies we give them, but all the other stuff that makes them whole. I'd like people to find more exceptions to the rule other than me and a handful of others that speak about it all the time. I was once taught that you can look at madness as a philosophical dilemma as to where do I fit in this world and how does my reality work within the constraints of everyone else's normal and do I sit outside that and what is real and what is not. It never works to tell people, well, that thing doesn't exist or that voice isn't there or that pain you're feeling is not worthy because that's that person's reality in that time and we can never make it go away by telling someone it doesn't exist. I don't just see demons, I see angels. Snapping and not being able to tolerate the sound of the screaming any longer. Maybe I'll just get that car to hit me. And I imagined it happening. I'm getting emotional fast. I'm becoming teary at things that I might not. Images and hearing things and seeing things. When I was about six, I started thinking about dinosaurs. So in a moment of extreme distress, I saw my pet rabbit sitting in the oven. We've got social constructs that tell us how we should behave, but even those people you see that behave outside those social constructs, when you go and 
be with them for a while, you understand that that's normal. The person that's talking to themselves on the side of the road, when you find out who they're talking to and why they're talking about it, it makes sense. When someone's running down the street naked and that behaviour looks strange, when you spend some time with that person and you realise that in their world their clothes hurt and they're being chased by something, then suddenly that makes sense, you know? This idea of madness only exists because we have decided what's normal and anything outside of that norm we label as mad. Thanks for listening to Out of My Mind. This was the final episode of a seven-part series, so if you missed any, do check out stuff.co.nz slash outofmymind, where you can learn more about all the people I've interviewed and find links to all the other episodes. If this podcast has brought up any difficult thoughts or feelings for you, the website has helpline numbers and links to mental health resources, including the organisation that Tammy Allen runs, Changing Minds. And if you feel like you need help right now, you can make a free call or text to 1737, where you can talk with the counsellor and get some immediate support. Out of My Mind was made for stuff by me, Adam Dudding. It was supported by a Like Minds, Like Mind grant from the Mental Health Foundation. Engineering by Alex Chalkoff, Department of Post. Music by Audio Network. My editorial advisor was Eugene Bingham. And special thanks also to Katrina Ferguson and Kieran Moorhead. Full credits on the website. And if you like this episode, please head over to iTunes and leave a review with lots of stars. It helps new listeners find us. Bye.